Good morning. In 2004, uh, the Red Sox found themselves in a place that Sports Illustrated writer John Donovan said they should have never been in. They were in the American League Championship Series. And uh, they were fighting and battling one of the worst teams in America, always the New York Yankees. And um, they were in the midst of the throwdown, and uh, the Yankees were up three games, and the Red Sox had won none. And at that point, very similar to the Patriots about a month ago, everybody had pretty much written them off. Here's this wild card lucky team that's made it in all the way to the championship series for the American League, but yet uh, here's the final moment for them. And it gets to the bottom of the ninth and game four, and the Yankees are leading. And then something extraordinary happens. The Red Sox begin to rally. They begin to, to press back and push back. And then in the midst of the 12th inning, David Ortiz hits a home run that pushes them in the game five. And then in the 14th inning, David Ortiz hits an RBI that pushes them into game six. And then the Red Sox win that with Kurt Schilling and his bleeding ankle that he plays for seven innings. It's incredible. And then the Red Sox make history because they go to the game seven where at that point no one had ever made it. No team had ever come back from that kind of deficit to make it to game seven. And, and in game seven, it's not tight. It's not close. The Red Sox walk away with the victory, which throws them into the World Series, a World Series that they should have never been in the first, the first place. And they do something extraordinary. They walk away with the World Series with the St. Louis Cardinals. And in doing so, not just appear in the World Series for the first time in 18 years, they win, which you already know this, the World Series for the first time in 86 years which begins this decade of dynasty that sports writers would agree that in the last 10 plus years, no city in America has dominated the sports headlines like Boston. Because in that midst of 10 years, it's not just the Red Sox, it's the Bruins, it's the Celtics, it's the Patriots. We begin this run, this dynasty of victory, and Boston dominates the headlines. And yet, so much of that 20 2004 kind of victory, that World Series championship, can be traced back to that bottom of the ninth moment where a player is walked, a ball is hit, and the Red Sox as a team begin to rally and tie it up in the course of just three outs. What I love about sports is that sports provides a metaphor for life in ways that sometimes it's hard to grab hold of because sports has a finality, right? There's, there's a sense you see, the, you see the scoreboard or you know there's only 27 outs and then it's done. And there's a sense of finality in that you can see the, it's very clear win or lose. And that we draw from sports metaphors. And over the course of this month, I want to lean on this sports metaphor, the bottom of the night, that for some of us, for all of us at some point in life, and for some of us at this point in life, we find ourselves in a moment where we're at the bottom of the ninth, where we're faced with choices and challenges and pressures in our life that will determine that we recognize that what we do in this small stretch of time will determine the outcome. It's not that all the moments leading up to this wasn't important. It's just that somehow in this moment, we will have some kind of decision that determines how this thing plays out. And for us who are in this room who happen to find ourselves in that moment, or for us who are just waiting on that moment to come because we're still in the sixth inning, 
we will all find ourselves eventually there. And over the course of this month, we want to talk about what do you do in that bottom of the ninth? What do you do when what you really need is a comeback? When you need a turnaround? In your life, in your finances, in your relationships with your children, with your future spouse, with your career, with your faith? What does it look like to have a turnaround and to have a comeback? And here's why I think we are uniquely positioned to talk about this is because Christianity is built on the original comeback kid. Because God's son dies and is stuck in a grave and three days later he comes back. And in doing so sets up emotion and momentum for us as a people of faith or if you happen to be in here and you're exploring it, it sets up a religious system known as Christianity that is rooted in the fact that no matter how dark it gets, we still believe there is a chance for resurrection because he was the comeback kid. And our hope as Christians are based in that and that Christianity is centered around the idea of the original comeback kid. And so over this month leading up to Easter, we just want to dive into this idea of what does it look like to be people who come back, who break through, who have a turnaround, in the midst of our life. And I want to jump to one passage today. It's, it'll be a very short, simple passage. In some ways, it's self-explanatory, but there's so much richness in it. I want to mine it out. I want to pull it out for us because it's this first step along the journey of us becoming a comeback kind of people, to have a breakthrough, to be people who don't just settle for breakdowns in our lives. And this passage is found in a letter written almost 2,000 years ago, around 50 A.D., by the Apostle Paul, a man who had spent his early kind of career as a Jewish rabbi with the equivalent of a Harvard Ph.D. at the time, and kind of committed to destroying this new faith that's kind of formed in the wake of the resurrection called Christianity, that he begins to systematically stomp it out. He begins to systematically try to kill and arrest all those people who claim to be Christians. And in the process of doing so, ends up having this incredible experience where Paul himself becomes a Christian. And a man whose life had been committed to stopping the church is now a man whose life mission has become committed to starting the church. And one of the churches, a group of churches that he starts is in this region called Galatia, which is in the kind of the Turkey-ish area today. It's that Middle East kind of region. And in the midst of that Macedonia, that whole region, churches are started. And Paul, as he's continuing to travel around telling people about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and the freedom and the grace and the mercy and the love that he brings, um, Paul doesn't lose track of the churches he started. And so what he does is in a day and an age where there's not email, text message, he writes letters. And Paul writes these letters to these churches, and one of them is is in the New Testament, and we call it the letter to Galatians. It's a very short letter. We've broken it down kind of in the process of translations through the years into six different chapters. And what I want to do is focus on one of the final sentences Paul writes to this group of churches. Now, Galatians is loaded. There's so much information, and we don't have time to unpack it all. But let me kind of give you the gist of why Paul writes this letter to the churches in this region called Galatia that we now call the Galatian, the book of Galatians. 
Um, they had started really strong. Paul had um, really helped to see multiple churches being born, and there's this energy and there's this momentum. People's lives are being transformed. But somewhere along the lines, some people from the outside begin to come in and start to distort the teaching. Unfortunately, that's been a problem throughout church history where, and really in almost every organization where people from the outside can kind of peep in and see ways that they can make in runs, they can gain, gain power, they can gain prosperity. And so these people begin to sneak in and they start to create factions and disunity in these churches. So much that it gets to the point where these churches are questioning whether or not they should stay together. There's major theological splits happening. And so Paul writes this letter um, and he's angry. All the other letters that we have in the New Testament written by Paul usually start with this kind of upbeat, happy greeting like, oh, to, my, to, the, you know, to the blessed saint, to, to the people I love. To, to him, it's like to the letters in Galatia. It's like the full name, right? It's your, your mom or your dad saying, Brian Christopher Calsey, get in here right now. And you know something's up just in the greeting. And Galatians gives you that same vibe. It has a different start because Paul's mad. Because this group has crept in and is starting to destroy the church from within. And so Paul writes this letter where he begins to lay out some of the theological ideas that they're arguing for. And he crushes them. And then he gets to the end and he, he goes emotional. He, he goes to the heart of the matter and he, he seeks to encourage them. He even says right towards the end of the chapter, I write this in my own handwriting with big letters. Because the, the thought is, is that Paul, towards the end of his life, as he moves into adulthood, um, suffered from poor eyesight, which meant oftentimes he dictated letters. But the idea is that in the course of this church, this letter to these churches, he, he gets so kind of just, he, he cares about them that he finally takes the, the scribe and the scroll and he begins to write with his own handwriting himself. And so it actually, the letters get bigger because he's having to write. And the only way he can see with the poor eyesight, because bifocals have not been created yet, as he writes in big letters. And that's why you see, kind of after this passage, it's such big letters I write to you. And he gives them this encouragement. He's like, in verse 9 of chapter 6, he said, Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. He gives them a, a series of lettuce statements, and this is one of them. He's wanting to encourage them because he recognizes that there is a group of people in this church who've tried to stay faithful, and they're starting to get weary. They've started to question whether or not this thing is worth fighting for. They've started to question whether or not they should even try anymore. And Paul writes this single passage, this single statement to encourage them and to inspire them and to remind them. And I want to use that passage as kind of a starting point to this series over the course of the month where we talk about having a comeback moment in our bottom of the ninth. Because they're in their bottom of the ninth. They're in a place where they're getting ready to make some choices and decisions. And Paul's word to them is the same word to us. And he says, don't give up. Stay persistent. Which we've all heard, right? There's cats dangling on trees with that quoted underneath in almost every kind of office space and workspace in America. Or some cute animal barely hanging on where it says, don't give up. But Paul's not just drawing from this idea, oh, we should be people who stay persistent. He's, he's trying to unpack for them the reasons why. So let's kind of jump into that so that we can see why, like them, we should see the key as persistence and why we should stay engaged in the game when the game is still being played. 
He says, let us not. He's just kind of giving them this challenge, this reminder. He's like, I know the factions have caused you faithful to have really questioned whether or not you should stick in and try to finish it. But I want to give you a command, and here's why. He's like, let us not become weary in doing good. And it's really simple to kind of read through this passage and, and, and realize that the actual words being written were not English. Paul spoke Greek. He wrote his letters in Greek. And it's in the Greek text. It's in the original like handwriting, the language of what he says to them that actually gives us a lot more insight. And so that's what I want to do is kind of navigate what Paul's trying to invoke. What he sees and what he's saying is he's pulling from a metaphor. In the same way that we're using this sports metaphor of bottom of the night, Paul uses a metaphor from farming. He says, let us not grow weary in doing good, for at a proper time we'll reap a harvest. And the harvest is kind of the first clue that this is, he's using some kind of metaphor to encourage them. But then there's another word in there too that's hidden in the English translation that in the Greek would have been very clear. You see, when Paul says, do not become weary, and then at the end he says, do not give up, he's using a play on words. He's using a specific word that's a very visual image that kind of lends itself to this idea of farming. So farming's the metaphor. Farming's the idea that he draws from. And his first kind of part of his encouragement to is like, don't give up. You're going to be discouraged. And he's like, and the process of trying to do good, you're going to find that in trying to do good, discouragement will be a travel companion for you. Right? It's, it's hard to do good, isn't it? It's really easy to be selfish. It's really easy to say some really unkind words. It's really easy to cut down when you've been cut. It's easy to tear down when someone tears you down. And whether or not you're kind of a theological, spiritual person and you're in this room and you would just say, well, that's just physics, that's thermodynamics, that's just everything's moving to disorder and chaos. As Christians, we would say we see the first few chapters of the book of Genesis explain it as the fall, that the world is broken, that everything in the world drifts towards disorder and brokenness, that none of us drift towards greatness, none of us drift towards a better life. We have to work to get there. Because there's something in this universe, there is a current that works against us. And Paul's recognizing that, and he's encouraging, he says, look, doing good is hard. Building a great marriage is hard. Having a healthy relationship with your children is hard. Having a healthy relationship with others is hard. Staying pure is hard. There's doing good is difficult. He's saying, I just want to remind you that, and in the process of trying to do good, what you will face is discouragement. And he pulls this visual, and I love it. He's, he's reminding them in the process of planting the seeds. So back in the day, this context when people are writing, um, pants have not been invented yet. We should be really grateful for pants, all right? Let's just be honest. Pants are a good idea. Because prior to pants, um, men and women kind of both wore what would be kind of the essentially skirts, Right, um, And the skirts, which are really good for air conditioning and natural airflow, um, would present challenges when you actually had to do work, right? So if you're bending down, hello, or if you're having to do things where it provides your legs moving kind of pretty quickly, especially farming when you're trying to navigate fields and you're pulling crops. So what would happen is the, the men in the fields or the women in the fields, they would have these belts on and they would begin to do this like cool belt thing and they would tighten it up, and they would turn their skirt into pants. This idea of girding their loins, and they would kind of, and, and essentially they would make pants, which is awesome. It's so much easier to work in pants than 
skirts and doing manual labor and bending down and picking up crops and planting seeds and digging holes, pulling up weeds. But what would happen over the course of doing all that is that the, the belts would start to get loose. And as the belts got loosened from kind of the constant movement and bending down, stretching, the, the fabric would start to stretch. And what would happen is your, your pantsuit would start to turn back into a skirt. And so it'd start to kind of hang loose, and it'd start to dangle, and it'd start to get a little kind of uncomfortable. And if you've ever worked uncomfortable, you know, what starts to happen is you start to kind of get a little lazy. And literally, the idea, Paul says, don't be slack in doing good. He's pulling this image. As you're trying to do the work, you're going to naturally, that just the natural flow of things is things are going to start to get loose, and you're going to start to have hindrances, and you're going to start to face discouragement. And he moves from internal to external. That most of us, we end up giving up on our relationships. We end up giving up in our finances. We end up giving up with our kids. We end up giving up in our careers. We end up giving up on our ethics. All because not something externally, but because internally we started to just get discouraged. And Paul's like, don't go slack. Don't get loose. Remind yourself regularly that you need to tighten up and that you're fighting for something. You're, you're doing something good. And it's important. Don't get loose in that. And he's drawing out of this first metaphor of this belt that will naturally get loose as you work as a reminder to them that be mindful of the discouragement. Because here's the warning. We have all been in places in our lives where we have allowed temporary feelings to influence permanent decisions. Isn't that terrifying? When you look back and you realize, I made permanent decisions based on temporary feelings. And sometimes those permanent decisions have consequences that ripple for decades or a whole lifetime. All based in that temporary feeling that we had in a moment. And Paul's like, don't lose sight of that. Stay tight. Don't become slack in doing good. Because... He moves on. At a proper time, we'll reap a harvest. But here's my question before we press in and kind of dig into the rest of the passage and wrap up. Is, is there an area in your life where you've begun to get slack? Is there an area in your life right now where the what-ifs, the feelings of failure, all these temporary things happening inside of you has, has started to allow that belt to loosen around you and you're beginning to question whether or not it's worth it. This very good thing is now debatable whether you should even be doing it in the first place. Maybe you're tempted to believe that in your relationship with your spouse. Or maybe you're tempted to believe that in a future relationship with a spouse. Or, you know what, I'm, I'm just, I need to compromise on what I believe I'm looking for because it's just never going to work out. My problem is my standards are too high. That maybe there's an area right now where you're tempted to kind of loosen up because you realize if you're willing to bend the rules a little bit, you could get a little bit further ahead at work, a little bit faster than everyone else because everyone else seems to be doing it. But is there a space in your life where you're being tempted, where you're getting loose, and you're allowing discouragement to start to cause you to debate whether or not doing good is actually worth it? And look, it could be a lot of things in our lives, from our finances to our relationship with our kids to our neighbors to our coworkers. But reality is that all of us 
if we're not careful, will eventually start to feel that loosening happening. And doing good becomes debatable. And if we're not careful, that leads to actually us stopping doing good. And Paul's encouragement is like, look, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest. He's like, don't give up. Here's why. Don't give up. This isn't the cat hanging onto the tree saying don't give up and some like fluffy inspirational kind of message. This isn't an office poster. This is based on a promise. This is rooted in nature and how God's hardwired this idea that when you plant a seed, eventually something pops up. He's like, because eventually what will happen is a harvest will come. There's about four months in the ancient world between a seed being planted and, the, and a harvest arriving. And Paul's pulling on the second aspect of farming to remind him that in the same way we recognize that there is a time delay between us making choices and us seeing its consequences, that in the same way, not just in farming, but in our actual lives, that's reality too. He's like, look, you know four months is the minimum you have to wait to have a harvest. And in doing good, it can be even longer. For some of us, those doing good moments, they're not four months. They're a decade of trying to rebuild a relationship. Or they're years of trying to restore a broken relationship with our spouse. And this is a helpful metaphor. And metaphors are helpful because life doesn't give you deadlines in a way that farming and sports does. It's easy to kind of fall into the trap of saying, you know what, this marriage isn't working out. Our finances are just ruined. And because we don't see the time clock ticking. We don't see the scoreboard. And it's really easy to fall into the trap to think, well, it just doesn't matter. We can start to buy into this lie when discouragement sets in that we are in the midst of a prison sentence. Like, this is a life sentence. I'm stuck in this bad relationship forever. Or I'm stuck in this financial place forever. Or I'm stuck, this is a life sentence in this career path I've chosen. And what Paul's trying to remind them is it's not a life sentence. You're not stuck in prison with a life sentence. You're passing through a life season. And that's critical. Because when you are in that moment, it feels like a life sentence. Right? When you have a brand new baby and you're not sleeping, it feels like you will never sleep again. Or you will never stop changing diapers. Right? There's these things that just, when we're in it, it feels like forever. Because those feelings, those temporary feelings, distort our view of reality. And Paul's saying, this is not a life sentence. This is a life season. And remember that there is a season to plant seeds, but there is also a season to harvest. And that season of harvest is what we're to keep our eyes fixed on. If you let me make a side note that I think is encouraging that's also discouraging, I see this with couples who come and sit down with Jason or I, and they'll say, you know, maybe at some point something's triggered him, and they realize, you know, we want to... We want we want a better way. We want a better life than what we have. Or maybe it's a parent with a child who's, they've caught them doing whatever, fill in the blank, and, and there's a little bit of alarm, and so they come and we sit down, and, and you can almost set a timer by it. You can put a, kind of put a date. About three to four weeks later, after they're getting started, you're going to hear these words typically. I just don't think it's working. I mean, it happens almost every single time. I just don't think this is panning out. We're trying now. And I want to say, look, you didn't get here overnight. 
You are in the midst of a season of harvesting from the choices you made in another season. The financial decisions you made in that season have come to harvest in this season. Or those relational neglect decisions you made in that season are coming to harvest in this season. And while that may sound discouraging, it's also encouraging. Because that means if you plant different seeds in this season, eventually you will get to this season of harvest too. And maybe you're in that place and you're saying, look, we're trying to turn around our marriage or we're trying to turn around our relationship with our coworkers or our kids or whatever it may be for you. And I would say don't give up. Don't let a current season of harvest from a previous season of life stop you from moving into a better place. Because if you're faithful in this time, eventually you will arrive at the other one. And that's what Paul's trying to remind them. Don't let what is happening with this group cause you to back away from the church here. He's, he's saying, look, stay faithful. Because at a, at a time, your good deeds, your faithfulness, the way you're loving and the way you're forgiving and the way you're standing for truth will eventually come to harvest. And they'll have passed away and you'll still stand and the church will be better for it. And he's trying to remind them that it's not a life sentence it's just a life season and don't lose track of that but then he gives them this closing conditional statement he says if which is critical if we do not give up so in all that i've said to you the key is when he says don't give up the key is to not back away because if we back away we miss out on the harvest if you plant the crops and you just leave. You never see the harvest. Napoleon Hill, who's famous for a couple different books that he wrote in the early 1900s, um, is kind of probably specifically famous for his Thinking and Grow Rich book. But most people don't realize is that that was born out of research, and that was born out of a lecture series that was sponsored by an insurance company in Baltimore, Maryland. And if you happen to go back and you look at the original lectures, it's in the midst of that original lecture series that he tells a story that becomes famous in the book. You see, in the early kind of period of the gold rush, it wasn't just California that experienced the gold rush. There was parts of Colorado that experienced the gold rush too. And this specific man, R.U. Darby, and his uncle um, kind of got wrapped up. His uncle specifically got caught up with the gold rush. And so they traveled to Colorado in the midst of kind of early kind of testing out the ground. They found an area where the mine and what they were pulling out from the ground looked really promising. In fact, it was so promising that they thought, they were told, that they could be standing on the biggest gold mine in Colorado. And so they traveled back to Maryland. They sold and borrowed from their family and raised enough money to travel back to that same spot in Colorado where they began to bring in the heavy equipment and they started to dig and trace the vein of gold ore. Well, the first Kind of the first car that comes out of that mining is really promising. It's confirmed they're sitting on the biggest gold mine in all of Colorado. A few more carloads like this and all the debts that they took to borrow to get into this kind of business will be paid off. And a few more cars after, they'll be loaded and wealthy. And then something happens. As they keep digging, the vein of gold ore that they were tracing back to the mine dries up completely. And they start to get discouraged. 
And they eventually stopped digging. And now they have the challenge of debt and machine. And so they find a man in the community who's considered a junk man, a guy who buys the stuff back. And for a couple hundred dollars, he purchases all of their machines. And the Darbys travel back to Maryland, broke and disappointed. Well, the junk man goes back and, and elicits some experts because there was a lot of promise in where they'd been digging. And some of the experts looked at it and evaluated it and said, you know what, there's something in geology called fault lines where the earth shifts. And so the, the, the experts concluded that there had been a fault line movement and encouraged the junk man to keep digging. Three feet from the point where the Darby stopped, he picks back up on the vein and discovers a gold mine worth millions of dollars in the early 1900s. R.U. Darby finds out, and it rocks him. He goes into insurance, and he, he kind of develops this life mantra for himself. I'm only three feet away from gold. Don't give up. And he becomes one of the first and one of the few to sell over a million dollars worth of insurance over the course of his lifetime. He becomes really successful. He establishes an insurance company in Baltimore, Maryland, called the R.U. Darby Insurance Company and Associates. And he sponsors the lecture series that Napoleon Hill gives where this story is told. And I think inside of that story is this very fitting picture of what Paul was trying to encourage the church at Galatians to do. He's like, look, don't give up because if you walk away, you're only three feet away from the gold. And I would say to you, maybe you feel like you're in the bottom of the ninth and you're unsure about your marriage or you're unsure about your career or you're unsure about how this thing is going to play out with your kids because now you've got a teenager and they used to be sweet and now they're crazy. And I would just say, is it possible that Paul's words to this church in Galatians is the same word to you. Do not give up. Because you're only three feet away from the gold. And if you're willing to be persistent, then what you may eventually find is that you move and pass into a whole new season of harvest. And I'd invite you back throughout the month of March for us to kind of unpack this, but here's the one sentence I just want to leave with you. Don't be, don't buy into the lie to give up or the temptation to back down before your time is up. Because there's still a clock on the scoreboard for all of us that's ticking down. None of us are at game over. And until the game is over, it's not over. And I look forward to seeing you through the month of March as we unpack this story of being bottom of the night so that we can, like the one who started the church, be a people who are a comeback kind of people. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter written to a church born out of the power of you being the original comeback kid. And I pray that we would, as people, be hopeful and persistent. And that maybe for those who are in the room today, who are maybe looking at their own bottom of the night, I pray that you would even encourage them and whisper into their hearts, into their souls, into their minds, that they're just three feet away from the gold. And that it's not done. 
and it's not over. And for those who are maybe um, still in the midst of the fourth or sixth inning and we're not in that season, we're not in that place where we're starting to question things, I pray that you would burn into our hearts and our minds the truth of this passage and that we would tuck it away for that time where we find ourselves in the midst of a period of life where we start to believe it's a life sentence and not just a life season. Thank you ultimately for the way you love us, Jesus, that you give us these words, that you give us this encouragement and this guidance so that we, like you, can be a comeback people. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. I want to thank you for being here today. One of the ways that we wrap up every single um, service is we carve out space because we we recognize that we're all in different places of the spiritual journey. We're all in different places in life. And and so we we believe that there's something for all of us in the midst of this passage. And so we don't want to just rush out and run out and miss the message, miss the point of how it might apply. So we always leave a little bit of space at the end of the service where a song is sung that's kind of captures the heart of what the message has just said and gives us a bit of a space to just write down, whether in the bulletin or in the app, just kind of here's my next steps. Here's what I need to do with this. Here's a conversation that needs to be had. Here's a prayer that needs to be prayed. Here's a, here's a, a choice that needs to be made. And we believe that this is a holy moment, that there's life change. This could be the bottom of the ninth for us where we start to rally and see life take a different path. And during that response time, we also uh, carve it out so that maybe if you're here for the first time or um, not just, you, you can kind of use that as a way to fill out the bulletin or maybe let us know you're here or um, prayer requests. That we we want to make sure that we give you space to get to know us and let us know how we can be praying for you. And then also, it's a, a, a space that for those who call Encounter Church Home, we use it as kind of our kind of holy habit, if you want to call it that, of practicing generosity because as a church we are generous people we believe a church should be known for what they do for the community not what they take from it and next month and um, actually less than a month we're going to be kind of demonstrating that that in less than a month we're going to be hosting the um, greater boston egg drop and we call it greater boston egg drop because it's great um, and people from everywhere and it's not just about 50 percent of dedham kind of shows up and then 50% from everywhere else shows up. And last year we had about 2,000 people um, who showed up for the Greater Boston Egg Drop. And if maybe this is the first time hearing about it, let me kind of act it out. Helicopter flies up, drops a bunch of eggs, um, plastic eggs with candy. Kids are like, oh my goodness, there's a helicopter with eggs dropping plastic candy. You know, ah! and, and then we release them and they walk very controlled, very safely to the drop zone and they pick up their eggs and they go home and they're like, this is incredible. And the reason we're able to do those things, the reason we're able to do community events to just kind of allow families to create moments together and have memories together, but then also to tangibly see that a church loves their community, not what they get from the community, but just because that's how God loved us, is that he demonstrated his love for us. And that we believe we should be a people who demonstrate our love too. And uh, so um, you're going to see the announcements for that and sign-ups for that going out in the next couple weeks. But um, we're able to host that event not just because of the generosity of the people and their money, but also because of the generosity of their time. And so um, if you're interested in being part of that, uh, there are different ways that you can serve the day before the event, the day of the event, 
you can come before the event so that you can still bring your kid to be amazed at a helicopter hovering and dropping eggs. Um, there are so many different ways you can be involved. And in the app, you can just sign up and let us know, hey, I want to be kind of, I want to be a part of that egg drop and we'll get in touch with you and kind of let you know how that can happen. Or even on the card, you can just write, I want to be a part of that helicopter thing. And um, we'll know what you're talking about and we'll contact you and, and say, here's some of the different opportunities. So um, I'm going to invite you to stand. Uh, our the band's going to lead us in a closing song. Um, for those who are, um, we'll just respond. And for some of us, that response is kind of thinking through our next step. For some of us, it's just giving. Um, for some of us, it's saying, I want to be involved. And uh, so thank you for being here today. Ben's going to lead us and we'll respond to this idea that we are comeback people because we serve a comeback God.